Welcome to episode number 210 of the Effortless Swimming Podcast. My guest today is triathlon coach David Tilbury Davis. Now, you might know him, you may not. He's former coach of Lionel Sanders. He coaches a number of professional triathletes, and he's one of the most highly successful and highly experienced triathlon coaches out there at the moment. Now, he's been coaching for the last 26 years. He's worked with Olympic athletes, Commonwealth Games athletes, and as I mentioned earlier, a lot of professional and age group athletes alike. Now, I had a great chat with David. I learned a lot from the podcast. He's got a wealth of knowledge, and he shares a number of things that, um, that I took away, a really good way to help you get comfortable holding a faster stroke rate. He also shares a set that, uh, a six by 100 set that can test your can test your resiliency in the water to see where you're at and how you might go across an Ironman distance swim. Uh, we also talk about uh, external versus internal cues. So external being, uh, rather than thinking I need to get my elbow high, he gives you a way that you can approach that and have better success by using an external cue. So this was a great podcast. I'm sure you'll enjoy it as much as I did. So let's get stuck into it. Welcome to the Effortless Swimming Podcast, the show that helps swimmers and triathletes love the water, become a better swimmer, and live a better life. Here's your host, Brenton Ford. Hey, David, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. So you've just got back from a little bit of a holiday. Um, do you take a break from coaching or you're still coaching when you go away? Or is it um, more of just a bit of a reset for you as a as a coach and just taking a break from the the daily activities? No, I definitely try, you know, to to take a break and um, you know make sure all my athletes are all squared away and happy and have enough common sense to you know be autonomous with their decision making whilst I'm away. Um, and uh, yeah, try to unplug in this day and age. Um, so it, it wasn't too bad. I had two athletes racing whilst I was away, one in South Africa and one in Cozumel. So there was the odd phone call um, and the odd checking of the Ironman update page. But otherwise, it was phone got left in the apartment. And with that, I guess, having athletes being able to take responsibility for their own training and not relying on you too much what's the balance for you do you have athletes who are quite dependent on you and they want to chat regularly and some that are happy to leave it for a week where's that sort of balance for you and how much instruction and education do you like to provide on on what they should be able to do on their own i try to i try to make sure sort of the level of autonomy and an understanding of what they need to do, you know, matches their expectations. You know, I've got athletes that are quite early on in their sort of professional career. Um, and so maybe also generationally, you know, I'm closer to 50. Some of these athletes might be like mid twenties. Um, as another example, maybe female, a different culture, they're American. So as a coach, I have to, I have to be empathetic to those different cultural and generational uh, dynamics. And so with this particular athlete, um, you know, I make sure they understand, you know, which direction are sensible to go with their decision-making. Um, so they don't feel that they're just sort of left out, you know, left out uh, on their own uh, whilst I'm away. And then I've got other athletes that have been at this game, you know, a long time and, 
you know, I, they just, you know, they, they're not even fussed about speaking to me for a week. They're happy to just crack on and they know, you know, when to call an audible, you know, maybe when, um, got one athlete, quite talented age grouper who's got uh, two young kids. Um, and one of them has decided that because they're beginning to learn about their vocal cords, that um, having a little sing song of three to five a.m. in the morning is is super cool. Um, not so cool for mum and dad, but you know, little lad, you know, thinks it's super fun just to test his vocal cords out for two hours at three a.m. Uh, so when that sort of thing happens, you know, he knows, you know, just you know, take a rain check on any intensity and just be smart about it. Yeah, you're just going to dig yourself into a hole otherwise, aren't you, if you push through a couple exactly. of sleepless nights. Um, it's I've, I found a similar thing working with the athletes that I coach in their, in their swim stroke is early on, typically the more the higher intensity of uh, more regular contact, um, they're asking a lot more questions. And then I think over time, they start to take on some of that knowledge that you've hopefully been able to impart. And then it's uh, that it's uh, yeah, less often that they they need you. And I mean, I've got a, a, a business coach and he's helped me for the last 10 years. And I, th- I almost know the answer that he's going to give me anytime I ask him a question. Uh, it's good <laughs> to have him there to bounce ideas off of, but I've been with him long enough to yeah, know, know what he's going to say. Have you found something similar with the, the long-term athletes you've had? Um, I, I wouldn't say explicitly. Um, you know, I think, I'm, I'm always trying to in, trying to evolve my knowledge bank. So, you know, one of my professional athletes a couple of years ago was talking to him about how he'd spoken to another pro that he was, you know, saying should you know maybe work with me. And, and one of the things he said was, you know, one of the things with working with David is even though you know certain developmental aspects may have worked for the last twelve months, don't assume that you're just going to like repeat the same recipe the next twelve months. Um, and so, um, it, it's not quite as, as simple as that, but I, I do always feel that, you know, my job is to, to certainly empower my athletes, you know, with more knowledge, more intuition, more awareness. Um, and hopefully at some point, you know, I, I make myself redundant now, you know, that's in a notional sense because ultimately, there's many professional athletes that are like so experienced that they don't need a coach to write training sessions per se, but they just need a coach to write training sessions because they don't want to write training sessions. They want to just do the training sessions and focus on recovery. So, you know, that's where, you know, with the very pointy end athletes, um, I use the example that, you know, it's not like working with amateur athletes where in terms of performance gains, you know, you're, you're looking at, you're looking for, for 20 needles in one haystack, you know, with an elite athlete, you're looking for one needle in 20 haystacks. So it becomes more a case of saying to them, you know, okay, what is it that you feel uh, or you perceive is just missing from your sort of arsenal of performance? You know, what aspect of racing do you feel is just not, quite where it should be um and then my job is then to go away and problem solve that find a solution to it um contextualize it in the sense of psychology physiology neurology um 
and then come back to them and say, right, okay, this is maybe a subtle shift in how we should do things that's going to address that developmental need. It's not a case of coming in with a sort of a, an approach of, okay, I, you know, I coach people with a polarized approach. So, you know, there's the worksheet, get on with it and maybe you'll be successful. It's not quite as, you know, it's definitely not that mm. case. Do any examples come to mind of athletes where you've gone away and thought about it and looked into what is it that they're missing and then you've been able to find that that needle in a haystack? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Um, as many, you know, as, as multiple instances over the years, um, you know, things like uh, working more on actually holding an aerodynamic position, um, working on balance um, and bike handling skills by riding on rollers, um, you know, working on different ranges of cadence and force production to sort of create the ability to cope with significant changes in sort of force production, you know, over the course of a race. Um, looking at ways of assessing neurological fatigue in in athletes who are hypersensitive to neurological fatigue um, and, and trying to monitor that. Um, you know, some some athletes, you know, I've, I've had two athletes, I, I, um, you know, similar performance capabilities, male pros, um, similar talent, sort of similar build. Um, one individual hypersensitive to neurological fatigue and the other individual just a blunt hammer just needs to do, you know, a massive amount of, of, of work to stimulate their parasympathetic system leading into a race, whereas the other individual needs to do very little work and lots of super easy volume to stimulate their, par their parasympathetic system. Um, and ensure that their, their taper goes well. And, and that's where it gets really interesting because I think in this day and age, um, you know, so many coaches and businesses are, are wrapped up in, you know, metrics and monitoring load. And, and, and unfortunately, you know, a human being is a, is a dynamic, complex system. And so you have to understand it from a, um, in this day and age from a, from a biopsychosocial perspective, you know, somebody may have maybe under a lot of emotional stress because they've bought a house and they have a mortgage and there's just an underlying, like, I'm just really anxious, you know, and, and they might not so verbalize that. Um, and sometimes you, you need to work on your people skills and communication skills to, to get your head around that. Um, and there are others that, just compartmentalize that and they're like, no, I'm just gonna just crack on. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's a complexity that, that can't really be simplified. And, and I still can't, don't think it can be simplified fully by, you know, using, you know, AI or relying on certain metrics. I, you know, things like, things like this day and age, you know, things like HRV, things like, neuromuscular fatigue and counter movement jumps things like training stress scores you know to me they're all they're all like a compass you know they point north or they point south they're not gps coordinates of this is exactly where you're at and so as a coach i think there's still a huge reliance on being able to 
to sort of, you know, excuse my language, be a bullshit filter for a lot of these metrics. Um, mm -hmm. But there's also a need to be able to look at some of them and say, okay, you know, these things are indicative of X or they're indicative of Y. But first and foremost, it comes down to that communication and that buy-in with the athlete. You know, are they talking openly and honestly to you about how they're feeling, what's going on? Um, and are they well calibrated with that? Some people aren't. Um, and that's another hurdle. So the nice thing with the swim, you know, your, your field being the swim is that I think for triathletes, the swim is like the canary in the coal mine. And by that, I mean, it's like an early war. Yeah. yeah, definitely. By that, it's an old English saying of, you know, they down the coal mines, they used to take a, a canary in a cage. And, and then if the noxious gases that, would suffocate the miners started to that you can't smell that you know would start to sort of uh, permeate the air the canary would die and then the miners would go oh god we've got to get out of the mine so you know that's the canary in the coal mine but um, my point there is that the swim is um it's like the early warning system of of sort of neurological fatigue and and general stress so when you start to see a decay in quality of swimming or capacity to change pace um that's very quickly an easy way of gauging the sort of uh holistic stress or the sort of the allostatic load that the athlete's under interesting so is that in a race or in training or both where you'd that's like almost that's like almost every session um something you know so you know I, i've been around a lot of swim coaches over the years and um, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm set on one approach. Um, I've always tried to, to, to pick out what I think are, you know, useful aspects of many different techniques. Um, cause I don't think there is a panacea, but, but one interesting thing that, uh, one coach, um, I work with, uh, taught me was, was using like a, a descending set, uh, within a warm up or within a prep set, um, and just saying to an athlete, okay, I want you to do four by a hundred or four by 50. And I want you to sort of go 60, 70, 80, 90% effort. And, you know, the, those times should be a nice descend and there should be, you know, a nice sort of time gap between each of those, those times. You know, if you start to see a lack of descending or a flattening of that descent, um, that's you know that's a prompt for more questions um and that's you know that's you know a test within a workout or a workout that's a test um but that that's something that i've always tried to now incorporate when i'm writing swim sessions for athletes is say okay pretty much most days that you swim you know you're going to do your warm-up um and then you'll do a prep set and within that prep set you'll do this four by 100 um and we'll just you know, see what the times are doing. And then we just keep an eye on that week, you know, week on week, month on month. Uh, that's good. I saw one of the sets that, uh, or something similar that you'd given Simon Hearn, who's been on this podcast, a, a pro triathlete that you're coaching. And I saw mm -hmm. a couple of those descending time or, um, you know, building effort sets. And I think they're, I'm a big fan of them. It's, it's something that I'll do if I'm writing workouts, like there's a, a squad down here in Melbourne that I sort of write programs for three times a week and I swim with them. And a lot of times we're doing some of these descending efforts and it's, 
it's such a good indicator of someone's uh, I think it's interesting you say it, it's an indicator of like like where they're at essentially in terms of maybe training stress and, and other things going on um, and I've never thought of it much that way but I, I quite quite like that take on it and I also I, I just I, I really like to do those sets just to give people the skills to be able to change gears and uh, have more than just one speed because I'm working with mostly age groupers uh, people who probably haven't swum yeah. for more than two three years primarily and it's it's a skill that they just don't have going into the sport and uh, and with the guys that you're working with it's they're really at the pointy end of the field and um, I mean most of them are, they're going to be able to do that stuff but how like what uh, are you looking at that four by 100 set? across several months and you're seeing ideally seeing an increase in just in the speeds that they're going across that several month period and using that as an indicator as as to where they're at with their swimming yes okay Excellent. yeah and it's and it um but there's a there's a but <laughs> um it's a bit like in cycling you know people go on about um you know doing a 20 minute test and and then taking a very simplistic approach is you know take 95 percent of that and that's your threshold you don't need to get into semantic debate about definitions of threshold but that, that's a really sort of simple cyclist approach to do a 20 minute test now as a, as a coach yeah of course i could write a training program that makes somebody truly awesome at 20 minute tests but if they're racing an ironman they're going to suck in that race if they never ride longer than two hours so, so my point there is that this, this four by 100, it's, it's very useful. It's very indicative. You can, you can track it as a trend to look at increasing performance, but you still need to have a, another way of understanding, okay, their, their actual sort of fitness, swim fitness is improving, but really what you care about in long distance racing is resilience or like, you know, muscular endurance. And so, you need to be able to look at that another way. Is there another approach that you do with a workout or do you just do a race and go, okay, great. Well, my program or my swim, my approach to swim coaching is X and Y and Z in this instance with this athlete. And they do this race and their swim got better than it was six months ago. And when I say better, I mean, as a percentage of the fastest swimmers at that race, because that's the only way you can account for conditions. So the way that I would track performance with, uh, with uh, professional athletes is I'd look at their swim as a percentage of the fastest swimmer in their, in their gender. Because generally speaking, somebody like that you've had in the pool, somebody like Josh Amberger, um, Josh's swim performance doesn't really change much. You know, he's right at the pointy end and he's pretty consistent. So the variance is pretty tight. So you just know that if an athlete's racing Josh and, you know, six months ago, they were 107% of Josh's time and now they're 104%, then my swim program's working. Yeah, that's, uh, and is that how you'd normally approach it to see their overall improvement or is there a swim set or test that you'll have them do on a somewhat regular basis? I mean, that, that's one way. The other way is, again, coming back to that four by 100. Um, there's a couple of other swim approaches I'd take. Um, a nice one that, that 
I I learned from Cam Cameron Dye, who was a top uh, professional triathlete um, some years ago. Uh, he and a really really good swimmer. Um, he particularly likes using a test where you do um, six by a hundred uh, as fast as you can physically go for the six by a hundred with a five second recovery. And he said that in his experience, that if somebody is sort of neurologically resilient, that they can hold their stroke together under high load, then you should literally see the splits for those hundreds be plus or minus one second. If you see them sort of like that fifth or sixth one, like drop from like a 112 to like a 115, then they are lacking, you know, resilience, endurance, you know, the capacity to hold their stroke together. And, and that's a nice little test. It's not particularly long, you know, and then, you know, you've got other swim sessions you can do, or again, you could look at you know, a, a classic, um, a classic Paul Newsom, you know, swim smooth is a, is a red mist, you know, it's basically 10 by 400. So you go five, five, four, three, two, one on the 400s. And, uh, and, you, and again, you're looking for that to improve over a period of time. Um, and you're looking for a good descend, you know, from easy aerobic down to, you know, threshold. Um, and you're looking for just consistent descends and pacing. Um, other approaches you can take are being a little bit more, um, uh, what's the word? Um, sort of giving the athlete a bit more sort of introspection and saying, right, what I want you to do is I want you to do uh, what I call broke, um, like a broken 4K or a broken 3K. And you say, right, I want you to swim this broken 3K um, at what you perceive to be your race effort for your given race. And you can break that 3K up as much as you like um, into hundreds, fifties, two hundreds, three hundreds, four hundreds, one K, whatever. It doesn't really matter. You can mix and match. I don't care. And I don't care about the recovery either. You can take short amount or large amount or whatever works for you, as long as you hit that pace. And so for some athletes that, that perceived race effort is always going to be, it always should be quicker when they're doing a swim session than the actual race effort. Because in the race, you know, you triathletes, they've still got a bike, they've still got to run, there's, you know, there's competition anxiety. Um, so it might be in this instance that somebody does a broken 3K and they're trying to hold 112 and they go sort of, you know, a couple of 400s, a couple of 300s, a couple of 200s, some 50s, and they're always hitting that 112 pace. Um, that's, you know, and you can, you can play around with the intensity on that. You can say, okay, actually, I want you to do that workout, but I want you to do that workout and actually swim it as fast as you would swim a 3k time trial and and again you know you're then going to start to get an indication of you know resilience and muscular endurance um, in you know in that instance because again they might pick a time so let's say this athlete that was swimming 112 for a uh, for an ironman you know they might pick 110 and then suddenly they actually you know, they do a couple of 400s, a couple of 300s, and then it starts to kind of go to 111s on the 200s, and then they drop to 50s, and then, you know, they're just able to hold those 35s. 
and that yeah you know tells you mm, yeah probably you you just haven't quite got enough resilience in your stroke i like how you use the word resilience because it it describes what you need towards the end of a, a longer swim because you do see people's stroke break down they can't keep the intensity and that's when they can drop off several seconds towards the per hundred towards the end of a of a race particularly over that ironman distance how do you typically go about teaching someone that or, or training someone who doesn't come from a swimming background and they come to you as an athlete is it with uh, sets like that or just with the training sets that you're giving them and you're trying to educate them on on what you're looking to develop within their swimming because i know i mean i found it I, i've done a season of triathlon i did one olympic one half one full and i never mm-hmm. i was never able to sustain intensity on the bike like i just i didn't have spend enough time on it and i was i was just sort of flatline the whole time running i can push it I've, I've done that for a while swimming was fine but the bike i just i haven't spent the hours on it and i, I couldn't do it so what's your experience in teaching people that in the swim league um you know i'll limit it to the to the swim for sure and uh, it's partly through you know the sessions like the ones i described it might also be with introducing some swim toys for you know certain stimulus responses um that are trying to mimic you know the kind of situations you find in open water um but it, it, it centers around uh, swim sessions like that um, because I think that's the only way you can get them to really reflect on how they feel. Um, and, then, and the reason I think it's important to take this kind of approach is because, you know, you, you talk to any good swim coach and they say, okay, give me an athlete. You want to make them a faster swimmer. I'm going to make them swim 50 to 60 K a week. Let's, let's put aside whether they are experienced as a swimmer, but you know, it's like the reality is if, if you want to train as a swimmer and develop yourself aerobically, so develop your physiology as a swimmer, you need to be swimming north of 50K. doesn't matter what distance you race. You're going to be swimming north of 50K a week. Now, clearly, age group triathletes, even professional triathletes, they just can't swim that amount. It's impossible for them to swim that amount and be able to do their other training or have a normal life. So, um, so then you have to step back and say, okay, the restriction in this athlete's ability to perform is not cardiovascular. So there's no sense doing training which is centered around cardiovascular development. You have to accept that there is a cardiovascular stimulus that comes from doing the swim training but it is not the primary driver the primary driver is feel for the water and capacity to maintain uh, technique under load a quick note from our sponsor this episode of the podcast is sponsored by form swim goggles with these goggles you don't have to look at the pace clock anymore or be one of those swimmers in the pool always grabbing for their watch. With Form Smart Swim Goggles, you can see all of your key metrics while you're swimming. Distance, pace, stroke rate, they've got it all. And the swim data is displayed on the goggle lens, and you can customize the display to see the metrics that you want to. And I was worried that it was going to be distracting, but you can literally see through the display, the metrics are always there, but you have to choose to focus on them. It's really impressive. 
and it makes hitting intervals or any kind of specific training much more manageable and achievable. And the goggles track it all, it's automated. So from the time you start your session to the end of the swim, you don't have to press any buttons in between. It automatically tracks everything. Form also works with a bunch of the best pro athletes out there, including Lionel Sanders, Sarah Crowley, Hannah Wells, and Olympic champion, Usama Maluli, to name a few. These form goggles are for all types of swimming too. One pair of goggles, and you can use them in the pool, the open water, you can use them in swim spas and endless pools too. So the same pair of goggles can be used in all of these different environments. The battery life is incredible too. One hour charge is 16 hours of swimming time battery life. And you can have the display on either your right or your left eye. The goggles themselves come with anti-fog solution that's used in dive masks. So it's great in terms of quality. And there's a protective case with a nifty drainage solution. So after you swim, you can store them safely. And while the goggles connect to the Form Swim app on your smartphone too, they will sync with the Form app and there you can review all of the details of your swim and you can see what other swimmers are up to in the Form Swim community as well. I'm a big fan of these goggles. I was really impressed when I used them and I use them for a vast majority of the sessions that I'm currently doing. To find out more about the Form Swim goggles, go to formswim.com and you can use our coupon code EFFORTLESS at checkout and save $15 off your order. Back to the podcast. And then I'm that is a subtly different approach. Yeah, uh, that's, that's so true. Uh, and in terms of developing technique and some of that fill for the water is, and you mentioned earlier that there's no panacea of swim stroke. And I'm obviously of the same opinion that there's it's different strokes for different folks. Are there a, a couple of things that you will have your athletes focus on with the swim or um, how do you sort of work that individually with each of the athletes that you've got? So I'm going to, I'm going to take a step back and go to some basic physiology. So when we, when we look at how muscles work, you, muscles produce force and at different contraction rates and the amount of force they can produce is proportional to the velocity of contraction. That's sort of you know, AV Hill's original sort of force velocity curve. Now, Every human being, depending on their muscle morphology and myology, so their fiber typing, mitochondrial density, muscle mass, you know, sheer size of them in terms of how much drag gets created, they, they have a natural tendency or a natural curve that's a reflection of, that, um, of their underlying musculature. So you might have somebody that swims with a very high stroke rate and um, that stroke rate will be consistently high or higher as they get faster in the water um, or as they're changing speed and, and getting quicker in the water. And likewise, you might have somebody that swims at a very low cadence um, and, you know, slowly increases their cadence as they're swimming at faster speeds. With those two individuals, you have to take very different approaches because really all that you're trying to do is take that sort of exponential curve that's that that's the force velocity curve and you're literally trying to move it sort of a little bit to the right and a little bit up and so with that individual that swims at a really slow cadence what you wouldn't do is say okay well when we look at the majority of open water swimmers they all swim at 90 strokes per minute so i'm going to make you practice swimming at 90 strokes per minute when that person's yeah. natural physiology is that they only swim at like 72. Then it's, it, that, that's like going to the gym and saying, um, I can bench press 100 kilos 
for five reps and I want to improve that. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and bench press two reps at 200 kilos. Stupid. Can't do that. Um, I mean, you could try. <laughs> so, so in, so in this instance, you know, it's, it's stimulus. I would take an approach of stimulus and response. So with somebody that swims at lower cadences, I, I would, I've used the example. And again, this is a great approach that I learned from, um, Justin Slade at Aqua Bears in Tucson, um, who's very much about, you know, improving feel for the water. And he said, you need to like completely overstimulate them. So, so what we might do is a, a bunch of fifties. And I would say, okay, Brenton, you swim typically at 72 strokes a minute. So you're going to get a tempo trainer. You're going to set it to a hundred strokes a minute and you're going to do four fifties at a hundred strokes a minute. And I do not care how crap your stroke is, how much you have to shorten it, how much you rush the recovery, how much you look like garbage in the water. I do not care what you do as long as you spin your arms at hundred strokes a minute and you do a couple of fifties like that. And it's infuriating and maddening. And then you set the tempo trainer to 75 and you go, right now you're going to do four by hundred at 75. Um, and moderately hard and you know and then you'll cycle through that set like several times so you go you know 100 back to 7500 back to 75 when your natural tendency would be to swim at 72 so then 75 suddenly starts to feel like oh this is really quite relaxed and and that's like a stimulus approach and response approach um you know, much the same way that, you know, correcting some stroke techniques require you to sort of overstimulate somebody in order to get them to kind of process in their head what's going on. Like somebody that, that you know, overextends at the front of the stroke, you say, okay, you know, this is a Paul Newsom one is, you know, put some swim paddles on and swim down the pool. And when you get halfway down the pool, I want you literally to point your fingers at the sky and they will literally come to a standstill. And then you say, right, carry on swimming now. So, now you know what you're doing when you're overextending. That's the sensation. That's what you're physically doing. So you're using sort of neurology to kind of train their brain. Um, and you're doing it in a way that is centered around external cues, not internal cues. This is really important because there's been a whole bunch of work done on internal versus external cueing. And psychologically, if you say to somebody, Oh, you know, I say, you know, Brenton, you know, you're dropping your elbow uh, when you extend at the front. So I want you to just keep your elbow a little bit higher. All that your brain will do is think about your elbow, nothing else. But from a motor control perspective, what we really want to have happen is we want you to actually get into a position where your elbow is high. So if what I said to you was, Brenton, I want you to go down the pool. And I want you to swim. And every time you take a stroke, I want you to think about basically reaching over a keg of beer. And so your brain will then think about all the movement patterns that go into you visualizing and perceiving that you're reaching over a keg. And that's very, and, and so, you know, you want to always be trying to use these external cues or external sort of stimuli that can help the athlete develop their stroke and yeah that's that's, yeah, that's kind of the way that i'd come at it that's that's terrific i uh, really i love the well, to start starting with the stroke rate so 
that's a, a great approach. And it's like you're talking about overstimulation. Like in our clinics, we do a couple of contrast drills to get people to exaggerate the things that we're trying to avoid so that when they get them right, they really notice the difference in, in drag or propulsion. And, uh, and then they can self-coach and they know whether or not they're doing those things because they've got that awareness about it. So that, that stroke rate one's really good. And it's funny you say that because I remember a couple of years back when I finally got myself some tempo trainers, I went down to MSAC here in Melbourne and I did a, I think I did four fifties at might've been 90 strokes a minute. And it, mm-hmm. it was incredibly hard. <laughs> I was gassed afterwards. <laughs> um, but then it's exactly that. Like you, then a, a stroke rate of, of 75 feels like it's, it's not that much. And so um, yeah. it's, it's a great approach because I, I know it's an issue for, um, for a lot of swimmers. And I actually had a guy recently who came to a um, clinic and his coach has been getting him to try and like rate up to around 90 strokes a minute, but he's, he's, he, he can't do that. He can't, he can't swim at that, at that cadence uh, well. And I think at, at best he might be a high 70s sort of swimmer. So he's just like, I'm getting so tired doing doing this so it's uh yeah it's it's very it's it's also it's also it's also length of levers it's basic physics you know if you've got somebody that's Mm. quite tall with long arms you know long levers then you know when they're grabbing the water let's say you know let's say 80 centimeters below their shoulder at mid-stroke um don't get hard on me about stroke technique about that i'm just using that as a as a landmark (laughs) you know if they're if they're creating a lot of force at that point 80 centimeters deep in the water you know the 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 load at the shoulder joint is far more than somebody that is anatomically shorter with shorter limbs where they're only like 55 centimeters deep now the stroke technique may look identical but the basic physics of force production are wildly different and so you know that's where coming back to that example of contrast and stroke technique, if you've got somebody that swims at a really high stroke rate, you know, maybe they're not actually grabbing enough water. So that's where I'd resort to like drag tools, like, you know, parachutes and foam donuts and things like that to actually really force them to think about holding the water. I wouldn't use paddles. And now, you know, it's a contentious one, but I'm pretty anti paddles. Because I think the biggest problem that most triathletes have is a lack of awareness of um, catch and feel for the water. So why would you put something on your hand which completely destroys any perception of tactility that you have on your stroke? doesn't make any sense to me, Um, especially because when you swim in an open water race, whether it's a triathlon or an open water race, and you're swimming on somebody's feet, that water that you're grabbing is heavily aerated. So it's not as dense as pool water. So if you're constantly doing lots of swimming with paddles in a pool, and then you go and swim open water, and you always wonder, why am I massively underperforming? Um, it's because you have no feel for the water and you're doing lots of swimming with paddles, and then you're going in a race and swimming in water which requires a lot of awareness of your catch yeah it's uh it, it, then with when people swim in a, a squad uh i see a lot of them push off two or three seconds on someone's feet what's your 
have you got a preference for for that like do you, do you find that beneficial just getting used to swimming in someone's drag and having that water aerated a bit do you want them to swim on their own with clean water or a mix of both is there it's, any yeah it's context yeah. it's context if you've got somebody that has poor open water swim skills relative to their pool swimming and there's a disconnect then you say right i want you to swim on the per i want you to swim on the person in front's feet and you know you you tell them to if they're in a squad you say you know please do make sure you explain to that person that you know you're going to do that and why you're doing it um but likewise if you've got somebody that just handles like rough water really easily um that's something i've always found personally is you know i'm not a great swimmer but just open water my capacity to change my stroke technique is fairly good and so i never really saw any decay in my ability open water versus the pool in fact i was actually a better open water swimmer than i was a pool swimmer but a lot of athletes are the other way around so you know with somebody that's actually quite good at open water swimming and coping with current and chop and athletes around them then you know you i'd always want them going five seconds behind the person in front mm. yeah gotcha and uh and in terms of developing those open water skills are you giving many athletes uh open water swims in the lead up to some races or is it a lot of the athletes that you're coaching they've, they've got that experience and it's like yeah you obviously want them to go open water and practice that but uh is it something that you will schedule into your your, your programming i mean there's a there's a logistical aspect to it of course i've got one athlete i coach who raced in south africa this weekend but he's swedish and he lives in stockholm you can't really open water swim um leading <laughs> into a race at the moment <laughs> yeah. in stockholm um you know, I mean, you can, you know, to be fair, you know, there's lots of people that like cold water swimming in Finland. I've tried it. Um, two degrees centigrade water is not fun, um, even for a couple of minutes, even when you've got God knows how much wetsuit gear on and neoprene and cold weather gear. But, um, yeah, I mean, all seriousness, uh, for somebody, you know, athletes that I coach in Australia, if they are close to the beach, um, I definitely see value in, maintaining um, an open water swim um, each week as a triathlete um, to develop, you know, skills and awareness. Uh, and I, I would just get them playing around with um, working on their beach starts, working on their exits, working on, you know, swimming across the current or through the chop um, rather than go, you know, you're going to do intervals of this, this distance and this intensity. Now I would just, probably focus more on skills or if you're swimming with a friend from a safety perspective, you know, bump each other around, swim on each other's feet, you know, roll over their legs, practice stuff like that. Um, so you just become more adept at coping with those scenarios. I was watching the Ironman South Africa swim that earlier today because uh, I saw a little bit of footage from it and I thought that yeah, it looked like a reasonably rough swim, particularly the the entry and the exit. Have you seen any footage of that, or you've been offline for for the last few weeks? No, I I, um, I saw a few clips. I know it's been a discussion point. You know, my the athlete that I coached, he got third overall. He was first off the bike, and and he said, you know, there was definitely a very significant amount of swell and chop, mm. and 
could the professional athletes have managed to swim 3,800? Yeah, maybe they could, and maybe they should be able to, um, especially if you Google um, Perrin Porth Surf Triathlon in Wales, then you'll see what real chop looks like. Um, um, but the reality is the race organizer and the race director has to make a safety decision. And, and, if, and then if they're not comfortable that they can logistically manage the, the safety of athletes, um, then they, you know, they have to shorten the swim. Um, and, and, and that's, you know, it is what it is. Um, you know, I, I raced Clearwater one year in Florida and the swim was originally meant to go on the outside uh of the peninsula there and the day before the race i was swimming with one of the pros that i was working with at the time and i literally remember we we got into the water and we started swimming and we were basically swimming uphill and i watched aisha go over the top of the wave and disappear down the other side and and, and you know kind of carried on swimming and we got out after a while and we were like yeah that was that was a little crazy and then the next day you know they moved the swim to the other side of the peninsula where it was a lot more sheltered and uh, they changed the the starting approach of the race um race organizers have to do this you know they've still got to manage the safety of people it's not um it's not a case of well it's not an iron man if you didn't swim the full distance it's just you know that's racing yeah yeah i mean i've experienced that when even with our our camps overseas in thailand for example you know we've had to change beaches and all of that because it's uh and 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 a lot of the swimmers particularly the good swimmers they're like can you just let us go out and you know for all of that but as the as the person running the camp and you know as the race directors have to you've you've got to keep that in the back of you've got to keep the safety in mind because uh it's yeah. uh, it's not a good thing if uh, if anything goes wrong so yeah i completely get and it I, and, I, uh, and i also think as well when when somebody's not experienced a situation where they are no longer in control of their own safety in the water unless you've experienced a situation like that it's very easy to be flippant like ah you know they should all just man up and get on with it you know like no i mean i i, I coached in i was coaching in brazil for um, a couple of months some years ago and we were swimming from this particular beach and there was a group of us triathletes and there was, you know, some swimmers that were also getting in the water. And there was a, I would say, middle-aged couple that were getting in the water and they had fins and big ass paddles on. And uh, and I kind of noticed and was like, oh, interesting. And so we all start swimming and, you know, one of the guys says, you know, we're going to swim around the edge of that peninsula there and into the next bay and then we'll swim back. But, you know, remember there's a bit of a current. And so we're swimming and I'm leading the, the group of us. And as we get closer and closer to this peninsula, I can feel there's like a, a current that's just like compressing and getting faster and faster and just pushing us like in towards the rocks on the very pointy end of that peninsula. And it got to a point where I was literally full out sprinting and going nowhere. And I was like, yeah, this is daft. Now I know why they were wearing flippers and paddles. And then we just, you know, we all just sort of, you know, sat up, stopped swimming. And literally within two seconds, you're 50 meters back towards the beach that we swam from. And, you know, unless you've been in a situation like that, it's very easy to, to look at, you know, calm, relatively calm water that might actually have, you know, as you Australians know, you know, you get a get water that looks doesn't look that bad, but there might be a really strong rip. It's like you, 
you yeah. do not want to be in that. <laughs> oh, um, yeah. It, it's so deceptive, isn't it? Yeah, it, totally. Uh, um, I remember um, going to, I was in Raglan in New Zealand and on a, on a surf trip there. And I got out of the water after a surf. It wasn't even very big. And this guy was, he was sort of five meters wide of where everyone else was paddling back out. And he got caught in this rip and he paddled for half an hour. didn't go anywhere and was trying to get across and trying to get back in. And then he eventually got tired, stopped paddling and pretty quickly got taken out to sea. And within 15 minutes, couldn't see him anymore. And so someone up in the car park had called the like emergency services. And then half an hour later, a guy comes on a jet ski and comes into shore and says, yeah, right, where's the guy? And everyone says, oh, he's, he's been gone for about half an hour or 45 minutes. Um, so just like yeah. keep going out until you find him. Eventually came back with him, but uh, like yeah. you've got, yeah, you've got no, no chance of getting back in when it's those conditions. And it didn't look that, yeah. it wasn't, didn't look dangerous at all. No, I mean, I think, I think, you know, sitting down with, you know, sitting down with a textbook, you know, and you know, maybe it's something that happens with, you know, the younger generation in Australia, but, you know, even for professional triathletes, you know, just taking a moment to sit down with a, you know, a book and learn about how to read a rip and, you know, mm. you know, understanding some of that stuff can actually be hugely beneficial from a racing perspective, you know, just to be aware of how to read current and chop. And it's actually, ironically, it's something that um, Richard Varga, you know, one of the top, the top ITU swimmer has talked about is, you know, he is so in tune with his swim stroke that he'll go to a race venue and he'll look at the conditions that, you know, in the days leading up to the race and he'll pay attention to anything and everything. And then he'll adapt his stroke in the race, depending on what's going on. You know, he'll change his cadence, he'll strength change his recovery, um, you know, his timing, you know, all those sorts of things, you know, and that's what they do at the very pointy end. Um, whereas most of us is just survive. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, I've had a surf Ironman athlete, uh, so like the it's like the swim board and, uh, and 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 paddle over here in Australia. It's it's a big thing. And uh, I had a guy Matt Bevelacker on the podcast, and he's he said the biggest surf he's been out in uh, competition wise was ten foot surf, and like these yeah. guys are just the very best at, at those sort of conditions. And you know to keep cool out there, uh, you don't just jump straight into it. it's about just progressively building your confidence building your experience and and going about it that way and uh for me when i started to swim open water i came from a pool swimming background it took me about three years to get any good at it because i had a, a pool based stroke i didn't know how to sight didn't know how to draft and it, it took me a while to to learn it and that came from you know swimming since i was four years old so it's it's something that you just need to get in there and have that get that experience because um, yeah, I, I kind of equate it to like you know, mountain bike riding compared to riding on the road. Like you, it's a different sort of handling skill that that it's re, that required that it's re, is required. And um, yeah, you just got to you, you can't uh, learn that that part of it from a from a book, can you? No, you can't. And you know, actually, I would say you know a better analogy is almost like looking at you know, like rock climbing. And you know, you talk to top rock climbers and you see some of the things that they do and you go, that, that's insane. You know, how could anybody do that? But actually, like the, the most skilled rock climbers are, you know, have developed like natural sort of risk assessment instincts, hmm. like over many, many years. Um, you know, there's 
And the most famous is Alex Honnold and you know his free his climb free solo of El Capitan. And everybody says that's as a as a as a feat of human endurance, that's the greatest thing that anybody's probably ever done. Um and you know there's some psychological aspect to why he's able to do it because his um amygdala just doesn't is doesn't get uh particularly stimulated um they don't know why he was born that way or but 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 his but he still talks about you know he's never doing anything in that um endeavor where he felt he was you know out of control or you know because ultimately you know the net result would be death so um and and that's the thing is exactly exactly what matt is saying you have to very slowly build up the sort of you know stimulus and response to these types of environments and conditions rather than and and, and it can make a huge difference i know from personal experience you know it can make a massive difference um developing your open water skill set um such that you can swim on faster feet um versus relying on just swim fitness yeah yeah absolutely um david i know i said at the start uh we'll go for yep. about half an hour we've gone for uh almost on an hour here so um I'll, i don't want to <laughs> take up your time any further <laughs> All good. really enjoyed chatting with you and um you know for, for me these podcasts i think it's uh, somewhat selfish because i get to learn a lot from people like yourself who have got a, a wealth of knowledge and experience in triathlon and swimming so um i've taken it taken away a lot from this podcast so i appreciate you taking the time to be a My guest on here and um you're i know you're um, you're not a man of sort of social media and all of that sort of stuff but um your um your coaching services is tilbury davis so if people do want to find out more about you or um, perhaps get in contact what's the best way to go about it yeah i mean i'm on uh, i'm on instagram as coach tilbers and um well tilbury davis um twitter coach tilbers and uh, my website's tilburydavis.com. So, and there's plenty of information there. And, and you know, there's, I've been on a few podcasts and shared a lot of thoughts around around coaching over the years as as things have evolved in in my mind um, and within the sport as a whole or endurance sports as a whole. Um, yeah, there's there's plenty there. It uh, it seems like it's like uh, it seems like the more of the secret weapon of a lot of the um a lot of top triathletes and um is it mostly word of mouth how like i guess it spreads and through podcasts and that kind of thing i mean certainly i've i've always um i've always worked with a small number of athletes globally and i've always tended to have athletes approach me through reputation or referral um Mm. and i think that's generally how it works and um, you know, certainly there's, you know, athletes that that work through a couple of coaches over a period of years. And that's, you know, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, it's, people are always trying to learn and improve. You know, I've coached individuals like Lionel Sanders twice um, in the last five years. Um, and, you know, at some point you have to accept that maybe, you know, you're not adding value um, knowledge wise. Um, or maybe, you know, the, from a communication perspective, you know, you're not, maybe things have, you know, adapted and changed or moved in such a way that you're not, you know, ticking all the boxes in creating sufficient buy-in. 
Um, and that's why as a coach, I think um, in any sport, I think the most important thing you can work on is communication. Um, and then after that, worry about all the technical knowledge stuff. Um, because until you can get an athlete to be fully bought in to a process, you know, you're always going to be having a little bit of an uphill battle you know, and, and just hoping that they buy the knowledge when in reality, you know, in, in any sale industry, they say, you know, people buy people, they don't buy knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. I, I completely agree. And I think that's the good thing about podcasts like this. You get to, you get to, you get to see what someone's really like when you have this long form conversation. So it's, uh, and I think for me personally with my business, so I think a lot of the people have come to camps and, and clinics, they've listened to the podcast and they can decide whether or not you're the right person to work with. And, uh, and that's what I really like about these, these podcasts, because we can, uh, yeah. And I don't think you really have these types of conversations that often just in person, like, you know, how often you sit down with just yeah. a friend chat for an hour, uh, on, on one topic. So, uh, yeah, no, this is, this is yeah, fantastic. Or, 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 or from, or from matter in this, you know, day and age of a lot of remote work or with peers, you know, and yeah. I think, you know, once you get to a certain point and you have a certain amount of knowledge, you, know, you shouldn't be afraid to share that. You shouldn't be afraid to sit down with a peer and say, Hey, you know, what do you think about this? Because wisdom is, you know, accepting that sometimes you're wrong and changing your perspective and evolving, you know, that's, and that's what's, that's what's key. Yeah. And God knows I've done that a, a lot of times <laughs> over the last 15 years that I've coached, um, but I think it's, it's all for the better. So um, yeah, David, I appreciate the time and uh, it's been great chatting. My pleasure. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Effortless Swimming Podcast. If you'd like us to help you become a faster, more efficient swimmer, go to www.effortlessswimming.com.